Once a month, we open up the show to your questions, and it is the first Monday of the month. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 348. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. Once a month, we open up the show to questions. If you have a question for us that you'd like us to consider for a future episode, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. That is a very best way to submit it to us for consideration. And just about every month, I am joined by the fabulous, the extraordinary Bonnie Stahoviak, who is here with me in studio. Hello, Bonnie. Hello, Dave. Thank you for the compliment. Maybe you should help people have a little lower expectations and then I can exceed them. I've been staring at a computer screen almost the entire day, and it's nice to be interacting with another human being, especially one that I love so much. And I am feeling great because it's all about me. I was feeling bad yesterday. I have recovered from my health issues, and I'm feeling like I can take on the world. You're so we're going to try. Top and, of the world. I am. We're going to try and take on the world here. And we're going to do it first, if we can, with Emily. Emily wrote in and said, I'm a 29-year-old woman working in the construction industry as a project manager in the UK. I'm happy and engaged in my career and very driven to take it as far as it can go on this very steep learning curve that I'm currently on. I'm also single and would like one day to have a family. I feel I have to compact these exciting early years of my career in before I'm 35, though I used to think it was 30, and at a faster rate than my male counterparts, which is a challenge in and of itself. How do you think I can best use the time I have to position myself to maintain a full or part-time career in the future? Hello, Emily. I related so much to your message since I had that original timeline of thinking 30. Actually, I thought much younger than 30. And then 30 passed and 31 passed and wound up getting married on my 34th birthday. And I have a few things to say about this. One is I want to divide things up into things that you unfortunately aren't going to be able to control and then things that you can. Sadly, we still live in an age where sexism and particularly sexism as it relates to our compensation and our opportunities to progress in organizations is still alive and well. I recently listened to Harvard Business Review's new podcast called Women at Work, and I'd highly suggest you taking a listen to their episode about the wage gap. And I love that episode because it doesn't just say that there's a simplistic answer as to why there are disparities. It really does give the research the nuance that it deserves. So I would suggest checking that out to look a little bit further at the things that unfortunately are going to be out of your control. But of course, there's a lot that we can take charge of in our lives and a lot we can do to try to work to negate some of those elements and also to just have more control over what it is we decide to do with our very short years on this earth. One thing that as I was reading through your profile, you might consider if this resonates with you is really starting to shift some of your focus if you haven't already into the idea of you being more in the entrepreneurial space in the construction industry. If this is an industry that you enjoy if you were able to start your own business, just as an example, as someone who provided project management services to other construction companies, that would be a way for you to have control over your own hours, for how much time you put in, 
and for how you, the kinds of clients that you decided to do business with. So I was thinking of that as one possibility, more the entrepreneurial route. And the other thing to consider is that sometimes in order to position ourselves to maintain a part-time or or full-time career and have the kind of flexibility, we really do have to be able to look outside to other organizations. I don't think you said how long you've been working at your company, but you have more flexibility if your eyes are continually open for what other firms what other companies might be able to be flexible enough to adapt to the kind of lifestyle that you want to live. I did want to just mention one other thing that I wish you the best as far as pursuing one day having a family. And one of the things I really appreciate about my family is Dave in that I still continue on this full-time career, although my career is a little bit non-traditional in that I do have summers off since I'm a professor and, and work at a university but it's wonderful to still have this steep learning curve. I feel like I'm always on this steep learning curve in life and that never has to stop. And because I have a partner like Dave, because I have someone who sees just as much of an interest in being a full partner in the raising of our children and not, I mean, some, some men I'm sure you've heard of like, I'm going to help with the kids tonight, honey. And it's like, you're not helping with the kids. They're your kids <laughs> or they're our kids, you know? And so I just love that I have that kind of a partner and I wish you the best finding someone like that. Because for me personally, I do just really love the ability to still pursue my lifelong learning, my career, and then also get to be a part of influencing these precious little lives. I feel uh, so much the same way, Bonnie. And one other thing I'd also mention, Emily, because we were talking about it this morning in our monthly academy symposium, is just the importance of building some good relationships with recruiters out there in the world, too. Um, if you haven't already done that, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful long-term thing for many of us to be doing is to when the opportunity is there to, or someone reaches out to us on LinkedIn, I think if we can stretch ourselves a bit to have a conversation with a recruiter or to look at other opportunities, even if we're not thinking we're going to make the move now, um, getting to know who those people are and having them know you and trust you and understand what your long-term goals are uh, lays a great foundation. Um, and I know uh, Bonnie in in particular has over the years developed a, you know a few relationships uh, with recruiters, not, nothing she's currently doing, but um, but really helped provide some perspective at times of change that was really valuable to her. And so um, I'd certainly encourage that too. And we really wish you well. And, and please keep us in the loop. We're excited to hear what happens with uh, your next steps. This next question is from Patrick. In my career over the past six years, I have often found myself where I'm the only American in a meeting and often having to give a presentation to a very diverse group. For example, just a few weeks ago, I was giving a presentation in which there were attendees from Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Asia, and Latin America. And yes, I was the only American. I would love to hear an episode on your podcast on how to communicate effectively, not only with other cultures, but especially in a situation where there are so many different cultures. Patrick, thank you so much for the question. So one resource is if you haven't already and anyone listening, set up your free membership, uh, go to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership. When you get access to the podcast library, there is a tag on global culture. And if you click that tag, you're going to find uh, one of the episodes listed there is how to influence cross-culturally. And my guest was Aaron Meyer on that episode. It's episode 286. 
Erin Meyer is a professor at INSEAD in Europe. I believe she's in, in France. And she is probably the leading voice, I, I think, right now on how to navigate global culture. And in that episode, we really spent a lot of time talking about uh, when you are navigating situations between cultures and you have multiple cultures you're working together, what are the kinds of things you want to be thinking about? And in particular, she really divides behaviors down to eight key areas that she's looked at in her research around global culture and goes into detail on that in the episode. I'd also recommend her book, uh, Culture Map, or The Culture Map. And I think that if you are dealing with this a lot, which sounds like you are, I think that would be a really, really helpful resource. So I'm not sure I have a a specific answer to your direct question, which is when you have a lot of cultures in the room, how do you navigate that? Um, And I'm actually going to ask Bonnie this in just a moment too, because she's done a little bit more of this than I have. Uh, But one of the things that I found that was really helpful that I don't think I appreciated from the conversation with Aaron uh, until after I'd had the conversation is how a lot of the times we have the perception that if culture, if a culture is somewhat similar to ours optically, that that should be a fairly easy thing for us to navigate. So as an example, uh, I think a lot of people would look at the United States business culture and then look at like the UK business culture and say, well, you know, they speak the same language. They're both Western business cultures. Those would be similar cultures. And it turns out that when executives and expats, you know, transition to other organizations around the globe, that oftentimes the biggest challenges are going between cultures that seem optically very similar. And part of the reason is for that, of course, is because we assume that because things look and sound somewhat similar, that they're going to be the same. And of course, as going between any culture, uh, things are in many cases very different, if if not more subtly different. Um, but it's easy to miss those. And so that's something that really came up for me, and I've, I've certainly utilized in coaching and in talking with our Academy members since that episode aired, aired of thinking about some more of the subtle differences between culture that often will catch us off guard if we're not taking the time to prepare for. So uh, one of that prep, one of the pieces of preparation to do is to get in, involved with her work and to take a look at her book. Um, Bonnie, you did this earlier in your career where you would do a lot more traveling internationally, and I know you worked with folks in a lot of different cultures and the executive role you were in. I'm curious if there's anything you would do in advance of those meetings and trips that would help prepare you for the different cultures that would be in the room. One of the things that I would recommend has to do with how you design the presentations themselves. And of course, that is something that you do to prepare in advance. I give this advice to you today regarding intercultural communication, but I also give it to someone who is presenting to an entire group full of Americans. And that has to do with the way that you design the slides themselves and having those slides help with the issue of cognitive load. Here's how a lot of business presentations go, whether they're internationally focused or whether they are focused on one country. And that is that we have seven bullets and each bullet has, you know, 15 words in it. And we're expecting for people to be able to listen to us talk and also to read the verbose words that we have put on the PowerPoint presentation. So what I would suggest to you to do is instead to convey your ideas visually and keep the words very minimal on those PowerPoints so that people can 
stay focused on what you're saying instead, because not only do they have to translate what you're saying into their native language, but they also have to translate the words that are on your slides into their native language. And so, and then you're adding to that cognitive load, which makes it difficult for us, if impossible, I would say to do two things at once in this particular case. So that will help. But what I'd suggest you do in addition to that is for handouts, have a look at something called slideuments or Nancy Duarte, who, by the way, check out Nancy Duarte's book, which is called Slideology. She's got lots of good advice for presenting with reducing people's cognitive load. So Slideology is a great resource. Guy Reynolds, go, no, sorry, Gar Reynolds, G-A-R-R Reynolds, also has a wonderful book called Presentation Zen that will help you out with building beautiful slides as well. So sometimes people call, so that's that's a PowerPoint slide, right? Those are on my slide deck, whether I build it in Keynote, whether I build it in PowerPoint, that's my slide deck. Some people recommend a printed document that looks similar to the slides that you're presenting, but that is more conducive to reading. Because people always say, like, if you're going to just put your entire presentation on slides, why don't you just print them out for me and I can read them and then we don't have to have had this great expense to all come together. But particularly when you're dealing with people from other countries with different speaking different languages than you, if you can create what's called a slideument or slide docs, it's like a combination between a PDF of, you know, a, a big, long, verbose bunch of words, paragraphs, and beautifully visually designed slides. And what you could do, you could consider doing is sending out the slide humans or the slide doc, whatever you'd like to call it, in advance if people want to have them translated it. And then we come together, we discuss these ideas. You've got this PowerPoint that's not presenting directly back to them exactly what they already read, but some of the nuance and open it up for a lot more conversation. So that's one option. Another option could be that you send out the slide you meant after the fact. And what a slide you meant looks like is some of the same graphical elements as the slides, but this is a meant to be a printed piece, a PDF that I read not with someone presenting to me. And I'm able to read it and discern what it was that they intended to say, but it's very visual. So it's not like reading an entire book on the subject. It's like a magazine article that really has done a good job of just hitting the high points with the text and having some charts and graphs and information that way. So I would suggest, you know, you could send out the slide humans after the fact to reinforce what it was you talked about. So you could do either one. What I would not suggest is having the slide humans sitting right there at the same time you're trying to present, because then you do create the same elements that you, you created in the first place. Although somebody wants to have their notes that they already took when they read it, of course, that would be helpful to them as well. I hope though that's some helpful information about how to prepare, but I did have a couple of other thoughts for you with advice. One would be whenever I wind up presenting in front of diverse audiences, I do look for opportunities where I can have some more one-on-one exchange. More collectivist cultures will hesitate to bring up questions that they have that are specific just to their, or they feel like it's specific just to them. They don't realize that other people might have the same question. 
they might hesitate to ask you something, but really have some concerns or really have some questions that need addressing. So if you can find some ways to schedule some time where you can have more one-on-one interaction, the other thing in the other extreme, some cultures will will feel like they can ask every question that they have and, and and not really be necessarily seeming like they're caring what the other people are or are not getting out of it. So they can kind of take up more time with question asking than you might hope for. So you would have an opportunity to say, yes, I definitely want to talk more about your specific situation, about this new location that's opening up, that, that you've got some specific concerns. Let's chat about that when we get together one-on-one. It just opens up a door to allow you to suggest that that person hold off on their questions. I've had such extremes. I could really relate to your message because I was remembering when it felt like someone was going to bust out and start singing the song, We Are the World, in some of the trainings that I was doing. And uh, speaking of humor, that's my last piece of advice. <laughs> you do have to be pretty careful on the humor front because... That's where some real cultural taboos can occur. So just just watch your use of humor and when in doubt, don't don't decide to to add some humor in because it's it's just not always going to translate well into other cultures. Thanks so much for the question, Patrick. Our next question is from Scott. Scott asks, for the most of the last 15 years, I've been a manager and leader of different teams. I've always worked in a customer service type of environment. I have accepted a position in an accounting department. I have my accounting degree, uh, but I will be the newest member of the team with the least amount of direct experience. I was wondering if you had any suggestions or tips on how to best navigate this transition. First, Scott, I wanted to say congratulations because this is a terrific move. As good or bad as this is, the reality of life is that usually you're going to find that you'll be compensated more for roles that are in accounting departments than you will for roles that are in customer service departments. I I know that doesn't bode well for those of us, which is pretty much all of us who are customers, but that's generally the way the world works. So congratulations. Sounds like a great move for you. But one of the great things I'm sure you already recognized is how you'll be able to take all that customer service experience that you have and the leadership experience that you have and move that over really nicely into accounting. So I would definitely, if I were you, be looking in and it sounds like you are because that's why you wrote to us is that yes you do need to get more hands-on experience specifically within the functional area of accounting but what a wonderful opportunity to then in the next couple of two three years be able to couple your management experience with the accounting experience you'll be gaining couple of suggestions for you. One would be to look at professional associations in order to enhance and, and speed up your learning specifically around accounting. So I would be looking for that. And then also recognizing that you do get to, as I mentioned, carry over with you this management and leadership experience, which is so needed in accounting departments, just like in all departments within a company. And I just wanted to say congratulations and hope this advice is helpful. And I know Dave has a couple of notes as well. Yeah, congrats on the new position. And I, you know, I, I'm thinking back to what Simon Sinek said when he was on the show a while back of leaders aren't responsible for the numbers. Leaders are responsible for the people responsible for the numbers. And in this case, you're dealing with a lot of numbers, of course, in the accounting department. Um, and it, it really is I mean, one of the, the very different things about leadership versus being an individual contributor on a team. Uh, and of course, we we all lead and influence even in individual contributor roles. But but if you're leading a team, um, it's really your responsibility to set the vision, 
to develop people, to be the coach. So the fact that you're not an expert uh, in, and you're not the person who's the most experienced in the accounting function, you know, I think a lot of people would see that as a negative. I think actually that's probably a positive for you because you can't, nor should you, be relying on your own expertise and your experience um, to do the day-to-day job functions. That's really the job of the people that are on the team. Your job is now more so to lead the team, to set the direction, to inspire, to coach, to mentor. And and I'm, I say that, and I know the reality is in a lot of organizations that many managers are working managers. They have their own responsibilities, and they have their own functions that they're doing on a daily basis. Um, and yet, I think the more you can have your time and activities be focused to those core uh, those core essences of leadership and developing people and succession planning and thinking about how to set the vision, I think that that is going to be really a great move for you long term. And a couple of resources that will help around that, Scott. One of them is um, I did a member cast a while back on how to create a shared vision. And whether you're thinking about actively creating a vision or not or figuring out what's next for the team, I think just taking some time to listen to that, it's about 10 or 11 minutes, will just give you a framework for where to start because that's part of what your question is. Where do I start this transition? And a piece of that framework is how to go around and start listening to people and how do you approach the people in the organization who are there who are bringing a lot of talent and experience and expertise to the table already for sure and in many cases know more than you do and have more experience. And starting to think about how you bring those different talents and skills together. And that that member cast, I think, will really help you to start thinking that way. So I'll put a link to that in the notes here and, and the guide this week as well. Also, I'd recommend listening to the first Saturday cast that we aired just a few weeks ago with John Pinheiro. Uh, John was on the show talking about his experience over the last year taking over leadership of a new team, uh, something that you're doing right now. And he talked through some of the key things he had utilized from past episodes and uh, experts who've been on the show and how he implemented it practically and what he did. And part of it was thinking about some of the lessons from folks like Simon Sinek and how he applied it. I think listening to that, if you haven't already heard it, would be a value too. So I'd certainly encourage you to do that. Um, but I think if, you, if you're able to, to really think about this as an opportunity for you to lead and coach and guide and mentor I think it's just going to be really fantastic to see what you do in this role. And there's there's so much opportunity to do wonderful things with accounting work. So I can't wait to hear what happens. Keep us in the loop, Scott, and let us, uh, let us know what's next for you. This next question is from Jennifer. I've been listening for just over two years. I like how I can always pull in an action item out of the podcast to better myself. You have great guests. I would love a guest topic to be how to get to that next level. How do you get executives in a larger company to notice you and look to you for promotions? I feel stuck in a mid-senior level job, but read about the demand for quality workers. Jennifer, thank you so much for the question. And when I saw this question come in, I emailed Jennifer back and said, "Eh, this would be a great topic for a future episode. And I'm starting to do some thinking on this. And then I started thinking some more, uh, just some things I think are a good starting point for you, Jennifer. And I, I was thinking about the book that I have not read, but I love the title and I love the author, Cal Newport. His book more recently on deep work is fantastic. And we had him on the show a while back. And I'll put a link to that here. But he has another book 
called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And it's a book about, uh, and full disclosure, I haven't read it, but from the summaries I've seen and from the title, uh, it's a book about uh, getting away from just things you feel passionate about and what you love, what you love to do and, and you feel like you should be doing. And um, how do you develop skills to create something meaningful and give it to the world? And I noticed there was a quote from Seth Godin about that book. And Seth said, create something meaningful and give, and then give it to the world is the way he phrased it. And I think about that in the context of your question, Jennifer, because when I think about people that I know that have moved into executive roles and have become successful executives in their organizations or people who have made that transition successfully in the recent past, they are people who have done that. They have solved a problem. They have become really good at what they're doing. They have developed the skills to be very valuable to their organizations and, or mostly it's and, they have taken the time to survey the organization. I don't mean literally send out a survey, but they have identified what's going on in this organization that is a problem that I can solve. And that I can get together either myself or a small team or a group of people and proactively and innovatively look at an issue and solve it for the organization or a customer or a group of customers or all of the above. And if you are able to do that, you position yourself as someone who's incredibly valuable, not only to your organization, potentially other organizations down the road. And uh, it's just... There's in, in most in most organizations and industries, there are so many opportunities to fix problems, and I, I'm sure you see them all around you. I hear about them every day from clients. Of here's all the things going wrong in our organization. There's no shortage of issues. Uh, I would zero in on you know what are one or two or three of them that you uh, and maybe some other folks in the organization, if you partner up with, could solve over a period of time that would really add value to what the organization's doing. And if you can do that and produce great results, and even if you don't produce great results, you're going to learn from it. You're going to get more experience. That is something that is a wonderful way to position yourself for executive leadership because people notice that initiative, even if you don't quite get the results that you were looking for. I have a couple of thoughts for you as well. One is the sad truth that sometimes in order to move up, you've got to move out and you can attract a lot more attention from other organizations than you sometimes can from your own. I don't love that reality. I really, I wish it didn't work that way, but one way that you can sort of replicate that reality without necessarily the turmoil that can sometimes be caused by jumping to a new organization and you know, some of the uncalculatable costs that come with that kind of thing is to just find avenues where you can regularly infuse your mind with new ideas from other organizations that you can then bring back into yours. So it's almost like you're, you're just creating this loop where you go out and find out what different companies are doing, what different people are doing. And of course you can do that by joining associations or even informal networking groups the great thing about that is you don't necessarily have to move companies, but then when you want to, you already have a network established of people that you know and people that you trust. So it's a good habit to get into. But if you're not even able to do that, you can just do it by listening to podcasts like the one that you are now and by doing a lot of reading specifically in your industry and being able to pull out 
what are the high impact practices that people are using in other organizations and finding ways to begin to informally and formally share those things back into your organization. I think Dave had some great advice for you too, and we absolutely wish you the best because I totally can see what you're saying about how easy it is to get stuck. Organizations are are not always great about building their mid-level leadership. And so you can kind of take the reins in your own hands and put some of these things into place. I also want to mention to Jennifer, you know, this this is one of the reasons we have the Coaching for Leaders Academy is to provide that in a very structured, intentional, meaningful way to do what Bonnie was just talking about of create collaborative opportunities across industries. Uh, so for anyone listening who that is that is something that you're looking for the opportunity to do to partner with other professionals and to get leadership coaching and mentoring from other folks in other parts of uh, the industry and in other industries, um, certainly recommend checking out the Academy. You can go to coachingforleaders.com slash Academy. At the time this episode's airing, we're not accepting applications right now, but we will be again in a few months. So if that's something that's of interest to you, you can find out more on that page. And we have a question here also from Brian. Is there an episode that advises how to hold managers accountable, mentor managers, on to whom they vent? I don't want my managers to vent to junior staff. Brian, you are not alone. Uh, There is not an episode specifically on this. There are two related episodes, and then I have a thought on this. So the related episodes are, first of all, the one Brian was listening to when he uh, emailed this question, episode 91, how to listen when someone is venting. That's probably most helpful as an episode if you are handling an issue with a customer, someone coming at you venting, probably, hopefully not an employee, but that would be a good listen. Uh, Mark Golston was on that episode and had a three-step process for handling that. Also a value would be episode 327, how to notice and change dysfunctional culture with Jonathan Raymond. We talked about at a broad level when culture is not working well in the organization and certainly people venting a lot to employees would be one thing that would not be working. Uh, There's a lot of uh, suggestions on how to approach things like that in episode 327. Now, to your question specifically, Brian, you don't want people to vent to junior staff. I think that's a very reasonable expectation in most organizations. People are going to vent, right? So we're all human beings. We all have times that we don't agree with the direction that an organization is going or a leader has chosen for something. Even when I think back in my career of people that I've had high respect for that I've worked for, there have absolutely been times that I did not at all agree with the direction they were going. So I think the question for me, Brian, is are there opportunities and is it safe for people to vent to you when that happens? So when when your team is working an issue and you make a call and there's a few people that don't agree with it, what is the culture of your organization right now? Do people have a chance to air their their frustrations and their grievances and their feelings in a venue that's appropriate? As in, like, do you have a conversation with them or is there a way for people to have those discussions and even have some open conflict in meetings uh, in the organization? I hear this a lot from leaders that will will espouse a value in their organization that we encourage dissent and we like people to challenge each other. But the reality is when you actually go watch their meetings, if someone does dissent 
or is critical of someone else in the room that people get very nervous about that or the leader pretty or very quickly quashes that. I've seen that happen a lot, even with people who espouse a different value on that. So people are going to vent regardless. The question is, is are they going to do it with you or are they going to do it behind your back or in the case you described to, uh, to maybe their employees? So uh, I, if I was in your shoes, I'd be looking for what are the opportunities I can articulate, create the space that I can provide so that people get those things out in the appropriate venue and then have the expectation in the organization that yes, let's talk about these problems. Let's talk about disagreements when they come up, but those disagreements happen within our leadership team or with each other. And once we've made a decision that we all support that publicly to the rest of the organization or to the customers or whoever the stakeholder is. So have the space, Brian, for people to dissent and for those discussions to happen and that conflict to happen. Try not to be as fearful about it as many people in many organizations are. If you create that space, you're going to be doing great things for people to allow them to vent in appropriate ways and then have the expectation very clearly on how that is supposed to work or not work with folks that are outside of that discussion. Thank you, Bonnie. All of the resources we mentioned today will be in the show notes. And of course, this week's weekly leadership guide, a number of other episodes that will be helpful to you if you found uh, today's questions of interest or relevant to what you're dealing with right now. Uh, We mentioned a few of them early on, uh, but if you go on the coachingforleaders.com website and set up your free membership, you'll get access to all of the past episodes organized by topic. Some of them that you will find that will be helpful to today's conversation is episode 91, How to Listen When Someone is Venting. I mentioned that earlier with Mark Goldstein, a three-step process on how to handle that effectively. Uh, Check that out in the podcast library. Also, Episode 233, How to Make Deep Work Happen. That is with Cal Newport. If you are thinking about strategies you can use to be more productive and to find more time to get the most important work done and to make that space and margin in your schedule to do so, Cal Newport is probably the top thinker on how to do this well. Uh, Episode 233 is a great place to start. It's under the Productivity tab in the podcast library. I mentioned episode 286 earlier, how to influence cross-culturally with Aaron Meyer. I already mentioned all the details of that episode, but that's episode 286. Check that out. That's under the global culture topic. Also, episode 327, I mentioned, Notice and Change Dysfunctional Culture. That is with Jonathan Raymond. We talked about some of the key strategies to handle dysfunctional culture when you see it in your organization. And of course, sometimes the message from that conversation is we don't see it, especially if we're the leader in that situation. So a lot of, uh, a lot of strategies there on how to navigate that well. Uh, also, I mentioned two other resources, audio resources on the website. One of them is MemberCast number four, how to create a team vision if the conversation about setting a vision was a value to you, that member cast will be helpful. And then finally, the first Saturday cast, the path to start leading your team with John Pinheiro. If you didn't hear that episode, I think that you'll find John's practical advice on how he's utilized a number of the episodes in the past to really provide not only a strong foundation, but results for his team over the last year. Uh, I think it's worth a listen as well. And you can, of course, find all of those on the Coaching for Leaders dot com website and there if you haven't already set up your free membership it'll give you access to all those past episodes 
my free audio course, the book notes, the member cast, just about everything is there inside the membership portal. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com and you'll get all of that, including access to the Wednesday weekly leadership guide that comes to your inbox every Wednesday. And next week, I am glad to welcome to the show Ginger Hardage. Ginger is the former senior vice president of culture at Southwest Airlines. Southwest Airlines, of course, is probably the preeminent example of an organization that has a wonderful culture, and not only that, but produces wonderful results. She's gonna be teaching us how to create unstoppable cultures in our organizations. Don't miss that conversation. Thank you as well this week to Chad Smith and Chris Lutian here in the States and to Shez07 in Australia for the very kind reviews you left on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much to all three of you. Hey, if you've been listening to the show for a bit and would like to leave a rating or review, I'm always grateful for those. I read every one. Coachingforleaders.com slash Apple is the easiest way to go or whatever platform you listen on. Have a great week and see you next week to talk about cultures. 